2: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jane Richards and I have the great pleasure today of speaking with Salvador Santino F. Rahilme Jr. He is a tenured university lecturer of international relations at Leiden University and his book today is Aid Imperium, United States Foreign Policy and Human Rights in the Post-Cold War Southeast Asia. It's published by University of Michigan Press in 2021. Santino, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Jane, for this opportunity, and I look forward to our conversation.
2: Oh, it's brilliant to have you. Um, I'm thrilled, and I was thrilled to see that um, when your book came out. Um, I've been looking forward to this one for quite some time. So yeah, thanks for being on the show. Now, just to get us started, I'm wondering if you can tell me first a little bit about yourself, and then also how you came to write Aid Imperium, United States Foreign Policy and Human Rights in Post-Cold War Southeast Asia
1: yeah uh thanks so much so i think the book had a very long journey and i think that was the first sentence in my in the preface of of the book um i first started so my first undergraduate degree was in philosophy i only minored in political science so i was really interested at that time on issues about human rights so in fact i wrote an my the- my undergraduate thesis was on the universality of human rights vis-a-vis the East Asian values debate. That was a very big issue at the time in the early late nineties and early two thousands. And my philosophy um, supervisor told me that this is eventually he, he did grade the the work highly, but he said like this is really more for work in political science than philosophy. And I, that pushed me to work in. I eventually shifted to political science. And I felt that um, I was really more interested in practical issues about human rights. And eventually I had the opportunity to work as a civilian intelligence analyst for a top-ranking government agency in in my in the Philippines, and this was at the height of the U.S.-led global war on terror in Southeast Asia. So Southeast Asia was a second front back then. I was a third generation in, my, in the maternal side of my family as someone who worked in in the military, and of course, this having this academic background of of human rights, right, and also having this practical sense of how the state employs um, violence um, that pushed me really to understand what is really what are really the causes of, of of state violence? What are the consequences of state violence? And particularly in terms of the rights of citizens, right? And really, for me, I wasn't really satisfied in just hearing the regular explanations offered by area studies um, specialists, but also the practitioners. And I was once a practitioner and I felt that was inadequate. And that led me to to engage it as eventually as a PhD dissertation topic. So It started as a PhD um, topic.
2: Yeah, it was. Um, that's what, I think one of the things I really loved about the book that you really married the sort of philosophical and the um, theoretical underpinnings really well with the practical application of the ground. And especially when you, in the case studies of the Philippines and Thailand, it was really um, uh, an interesting narrative and analysis and it really gave meaning to your sort of theoretical underpinnings. Um, so I want to turn to the introduction of the book and now this is sort of the one of the overarching themes, I think, that came through for me and now the US is the largest aid donor country in the world and that this is a gross impl- oversimplification but your book is sort of generally about US foreign aid and the way that it's donation to non-western countries and the case studies that come out later are on the Philippines and Thailand and how these donations influence domestic policies in these countries is you know, pol- these policies in these countries and of course their practices and their political practices especially with regard to those countries' domestic human rights policies. Now, I just want to get a broad understanding for listeners. Can you describe for me a bit about what your book is about?
1: Yeah, so the book is about uh, the impact of United, post-Cold War United States foreign aid on physical integrity rights in aid recipient countries. So um, I'm referring to... Particularly the so particularly physical integrity rights, so the freedom of the human person from extrajudicial killings, from torture, enforced disappearances, and other forms. In fact, of of mental harassment or or you know um abuses to the mental health of the human person. So that's on the on the human rights side. In terms of the U.S. foreign aid, it's really about understanding. Um, the impact not only of the material aspects of aid that you can easily see with the quantitative amounts publicly that's, that are publicly accessible, publicly known, but also the diplomatic side of it, the discursive side of it. We can probably talk about that later on. So the core puzzle of the book is: does foreign, um, does foreign, does United States foreign aid undermine physical integrity rights, and if so, how and under which set of conditions? This is a very broad puzzle. But I just um, look, and I recognize first how big the U.S. foreign aid apparatus is. So I think it was mentioned that so far the United States, since the end of the Second World War, has given around, well, has given foreign aid for around to around two hundred recipient countries. These are countries that are no longer. Some of them are no longer existing, right? I mean, I think there are only fewer than 200 countries now but we're talking about countries that have existed, have transformed into something else to another country. So really we're talking about something that is much bigger than um, than we often think about the United States foreign aid apparatus.
2: So I guess I want to ask you about this core puzzle because it's sort of and I, I think this is sort of one's intuition and it comes forward, in the book, but the sort of idea is, you know, if there's foreign aid, it goes into these um, recipient countries, then human rights should improve. But this isn't necessarily always the case. Can you talk a bit more about this and what you found in your research?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think the I, I agree with you that the common intuition amongst the public and perhaps some of the scholars who are also ideologically you know, um, I would say, <laughs> guided by this idea that well, the United States government pronounces that it's about human rights, and therefore most likely it will lead to human rights uh, promotion in in those recipient countries. I think what we see here in the case studies confirm that um, there are complex effects of U.S. foreign aid. So the first um, effect is that. United States foreign aid, especially to those countries that have been historically dependent on U.S. um, political patronage. So we're not talking about here, for example, other countries that might have traditionally been quite distant. From the United States. So I, I carefully selected cases that have been historically uh, dependent on, on U.S. patronage. You can see here that the United States foreign aid and diplomacy interact with a lot of domestic uh, factors in those recipient countries. And this interaction produces, um, you know, complex outcomes in terms of state repression. So the core argument, just very briefly, the core argument of, of the book is that what um, So the converging interests of the donor governments, in this case the United States, plus the recipient government, together with the domestic le- level of domestic legitimacy of the recipient country, ha- will actually impact um, the level of state repression in those um, in those recipient countries. So basically, what we see is that. Those countries that if the converging interest is really about a comprehensive uh, range of interests, then we are most likely to see fewer human rights abuses. But if the emphasis of this converging interest will be much more militaristic, plus you have a high a very insecure recipient government, then we are more likely to see a very a deteriorating human rights situation in recipient countries. It might sound very Simplistic, but I think um, the, the book offers a lot of those um, intermediate variables that make the story, in my view at least, and after the public, after I wrote this manuscript, right, even before the publication, I've tested the theory in, in other cases. And I felt that I was quite convinced <laughs> with, with the theory that it could work in other cases beyond Southeast Asia.
2: And that's really interesting. I want to pick up on this point that you just made about um, how it plays out in terms of domestic legitimacy where governments are insecure, because this, again, was one of the core themes that came through, which I found really interesting. So I want to quote just um, for a moment. So it seems that your core argument refutes the idea that, and I quote, recipient countries usually do not have the power to shape the strategic purposes and the implementation patterns of foreign aid programs, rather, aid-recipient governments instrumentalize foreign aid in ways that bolster their domestic political legitimacy. So I guess I'm interested in then, in the context of what you've just told me, um, why this actually might be the case and how do aid-recipient governments actually bolster their strategic legitimacy by, for example, the use of foreign strategic support from the US or other donor countries?
1: Absolutely. So I think this is, um, I think one of the, in my view, at least one of the most important interventions that I'd like to contribute in, in the debate in human rights, in international relations, um, mm-hmm. in foreign policy analysis, that when we hear a lot of these discussions about United States foreign aid, we often think, or in fact, even for example, other countries in the global north, right, it portrays global South countries as passive receive recipients or passive actors, as if we are just waiting to be, um, you know, to receive attention from from the corridors of power in Brussels, in Berlin, or in Washington, D.C. That is wrong. That is fundamentally wrong. And at least in the story of United States foreign aid, just intuitively, right, without looking first into the fieldwork, into the evidence, the United States government, if you have a new administration, the United States government will not go around and ask everyone, do you need foreign aid? That's not absolutely the case. What really happens, and this is confirmed by my fieldwork as well in Washington, D.C., is that a lot of these um, governments in the global global south may hire actually hire um, lobbyists or lobbying firms to basically portray that their countries receive should receive a particular aid package for a specific purpose. These lobbying firms actually interact with various members of Congress and other key uh, power brokers to the extent that it actually, it, there's a much more, a much more Um, I would say, a much strong political purpose on the part of the recipient government why they're framing that need for foreign aid in such a way that could be, um, that could bolster their interests, whether it's for democracy or for other more sinister um, political interests. So I think that's the big, one of the big um, elements of the story that I'd like to offer here. And this is out of my frustration as well when, I hear scholars and you know even for example, an ordinary news report that it it portrays many countries even outside of Southeast Asia, like in the global south, as if we are just waiting for foreign aid to be to be you know to be given to us without having the agency for these leaders to actually use these aid for various political purposes that may deem necessary for their purpose, for their interests.
2: And that was such an interesting point that came through and I did really feel it was a really unique contribution. Um, so then sort of building on that, would you say there's a difference between sort of, I guess, mere foreign aid and foreign strategic support? And how does this play out in a practical sense in the application on the ground?
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think the idea here is that uh, this is also another contribution that I'd like to offer um, with Aid Imperium is the idea that most of the social scientific studies of foreign aid only looks into the aid amounts, right? I, I mean, if you just look into the studies of foreign aid in the past five to ten years, from economy, econ, economics to. Um, to certain extent, sociology and international relations, you always look into these aid amounts and perhaps look into use quantitative methods to tease out what could be its impact in recipient countries. What I argue is that we have to look also into the discursive, uh, so to the publicly stated purposes and diplomacy of the of the aid um, donor country, but as well as the recipient country, because I believe that they're actually two sides of the same coin, right? So you have the actual material aspect, but also you have the ideational aspect. And in so it's not a question of which one is much more important, but actually they're two sides of the same coin and they mutually constitute each other. Um, this is exactly the reason why I think in, in another part of the book I Argue that aid is somehow fungible, so there's this fungibility nature of of foreign aid. So it's there are cases in which the United States wanted to give uh, food aid, but in order to well, it was the reason for that was that it wanted to evade certain restrictions. So the food aid was given, although it will be used for another purpose, and that purpose can be. Can be um can be known using uh, by actually looking into the publicly stated purposes and the overall context when the aid was given.
2: And I guess this is probably a good point to talk about um, your fieldwork and how you actually conducted your study because you mentioned ordinarily sort of this sort of not this sort of research, but the sort of starting point is quantitative research that looks at the amount of aid and doesn't go. Often beyond that. So can you talk more about how you actually did your study?
1: Absolutely. So the um, so I first started so in the introduction I contextualized the broad um, patterns of foreign aid and its relationship, US foreign aid, post-Cold War, US foreign aid and human rights. So started with that. Um, quantitative, uh, to tease out these quantitative patterns. I conducted fieldwork both mostly in Washington, D.C., but also in Southeast Asia. But you can see in the book that I only referred to all all of them are open access sources. This is for security reasons. Uh, this is a highly sense. I mean, this is a, for some, it is very controversial topic and it could actually, um it, the story that I'm telling might not please everyone, but this is what I believe is actually the the proper interpretation of of what happened in in the context yeah. of U.S. foreign yeah. aid in Southeast Asia. So, um, in the book, I only high I highlighted that it's really document analysis, and I did that for almost three thousand open source documents from ranging from primary documents from governments in Southeast Asia and the U.S. government as well. Um, Reports from first hand reports from human rights organizations, both in Western human rights organizations, but also local human rights organizations in Southeast Asia. We also have media reports. um, I use Factiva, which is this very important database, it has a lot of these newspaper report archives, as well as many other. secondhand reports from reputable organizations, such as the United Nations um, Rapporteur Reports. These are important, but I also felt that I it's also important to look into the official reports of the governments that are conducting the abuse. So methodologically, I use um, data triangulation. So if there's one supposed piece of information that is in this, is, that is disputed, then I look into the common denominator of what's really being said by most of these different sources with nominally different interests and tease that out. So it's true that in the book I cited that it's really document analysis, but I did conduct uh, fieldwork during the period 2011 to 2014. But this is something that I did not explicitly state here because in the end, I rely on officially published documents. From various organizations using data triangulation, but I also felt is that many of the interviews that I conducted, which I did not cite here, would basically just re- would echo what has been officially said in different or different documents, and in the end, some of them would actually lie. I would say based on what is actually officially published, and I, I did not have the chance to cross verify, or I, I did not see how. I can cross-verify their their sources because it's highly questionable based on the different published sources from different um, organizations with nominally different interests. So that was the major challenge. But I thought that um, engaging with a lot of these um, sources would be the best way to tease out what could be the most accurate interpretation of what happened.
2: And it was actually super interesting because you could see this sort of like perhaps gap you might say between the official policy and what's being said that's being done and perhaps what's going on in the ground so that was that was super interesting and I did also like how it was open access so a reader or a student could you know pick up your book and go and you know have a look at the some of the data at least for themselves so yeah I I think it was super interesting um I wonder then what was the biggest surprise when you were doing a research
1: I think the biggest surprise for me was the idea that what started to me as a personal realization, right? You had this human rights crisis in the Philippines um, and then also in the nearby country, Thailand, which is you know, another mutual defense uh, partner of the United States in Southeast Asia. These patterns eventually... Actually, can be seen in many other places in the global South. That was the biggest surprise for me. So for me, it was really an iterative process of developing the theory in conversation with the different cases that I look into or that I explored in in post Cold War Southeast Asia. And as I develop the theory vis a vis the understanding the empirical evidence, I read more in the news about what's happening in other countries beyond the region, and I also talk with a lot more. Um, individuals who might not be directly researching about foreign aid or human rights, but when they talk about their own respective country specializations or where they come from, it seems that the patterns are, you can tease out those patterns. And that was the biggest surprise for me. And, and despite super, the differences, yeah. you can see it, some some over, overarching patterns.
2: And that was super interesting as well. Like I think as you say, since reading your book, when I see something on the news, you can sort of um Perhaps, I mean, obviously I wouldn't get the same level of detail as you, but there are these really interesting patterns and you've really sort of opened the gate for further research in this area. So I think that was a really great contribution. I think it would be good now to turn to the sort of substantive parts of the book. Um, Firstly, I want to talk about your chapter titled United States Aid Imperium and Human Rights. Can you just explain a little bit um, the concept of the title Aid Imperium and how this relates to human rights?
1: Yeah, so the concept of aid imperium is really um, um, a concept that actually tries to capture the reality of the international development sector. Um, the United States is the biggest aid donor state in the world. Um, historically, as I've said before, it has given um, foreign aid since the end of the Cold War to at least 200 recipient countries. Some of them are no longer existing. Um, this is a very big apparatus, and the United States is still the dominant hegemon. It's the dominant power in the dominant state actor in the international system. Some um, social scientists would argue that it's actually an empire. Um, and in the international aid sector, is this really the case? I tried to avoid the using the term empire and I used the term imperium to the extent that at least the way that I defined it is the fact is the idea that the imperium captures the world order, particularly in the international development sector, in which it's highly asymmetrical, to the extent that the United States is at the top of this backing order in the international development sector as the largest state donor. But this relate, really, but basically the United States, in order to exert its power to actually induce social, political transformation in aid-recipient countries, that unilateral exercise of power would not be effective without the participation of the elites and other key stakeholders in recipient countries. In other words, the power flow is, comes in both ways. Right. The United States cooperate with elites and, and other key stakeholders in those recipient countries, but likewise, those stake, domestic stakeholders have their own interests in in part in their partnership. And in fact, it's not really a partnership, but it's collaboration with with the United States government at a given period in time. What I also argue in this aid imperium, so it's basically an, a first order. Type of concept that captures what's really going on in the international development sector. But secondly, I argue that this imperium is not always a story of full convergence of interest between domestic elites and those in the corridors of power in Washington, D.C. In many, and I would argue in all cases, perhaps, but at least in all cases that I studied here, it was always a story of partial convergence. Um. And we can perhaps talk about that later on in the in the empirical cases, but really, the idea of aid Imperium is to capture this highly asymmetrical uh, world order, particularly in the international development sector, but also challenging very simplistic ideas about the United States as a hegemonic power. That hegemonic power would be impossible without the participation of the key stakeholders in domestic recipient countries.
2: And I think one of the ways you illustrate this very well just in this chapter, we'll move on to the other ones in just a moment, but you write sort of to introduce this chapter that in 2017 on March the 19th, the then President, uh, US President, sorry, Donald Trump, he proposed severe budget cuts to annual US aid contributions to the UN and now you've talked about how the UN is the biggest aid donor now, of course, this provoked really widespread concern regarding the implications of what would happen if aid was stopped in this way, both in like an immediate sense but also in terms of um, causing political instability long-term. And I want to turn a bit more to hear more about your um, theory of interest convergence because I, th- I think this sort of relates to it and you talked about it being collaborative um, and a convergence sorry, and not always a convergence of interests. So I'm wondering um, if you can just tell me a little bit about, bit more about this, this theory.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the idea of interest convergence, so the theory, the theory of interest convergence is a framework that I developed for this book in order to understand really how and under which conditions does U.S. foreign aid impact human rights in recipient countries from the term itself, Um, I argue that you can only tease out what are the impacts of foreign aid by looking exactly on what are the converging interests, what are those common interests or shared interests of the donor and the recipient countries, but also their key stakeholders. Um, These converging interests have will interact with other domestic factors. So these domestic factors, for example, would include the judicial apparatus, but also the coercive apparatus of the state, so vis-a-vis the military and police agencies. So, for example, in the case of, of post-Cold War Thailand and the Philippines, so just to, to give an example, in the case of, the po- of post-Cold War Thailand and the Philippines, um, you have an emerging dem- democratization movement especially in the early 1990s in those countries. Plus, you also have the Clinton administration, whose primary policy agenda was about democracy promotion, for better or for worse, right? But the idea there is the, the focus was no longer about Cold War, militarism, but the focus was really about democracy, right? free markets, and good governance. So those principles were also reframed by those domestic stakeholders in Thailand and the Philippines in ways that would resonate very well to their own domestic audience, that indeed democracy was the only way to go at the time. And they have their own domestic discourses. So the first part of the theory was strategic localization. The the term strategic localization is a mechanism in which these domestic stakeholders in recipient countries argue that... Foreign aid from the United States is justified, and this process of arguing, this process of justifying that such aid is necessary, um, is a process that is casted in two two types of audience. You have the 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 foreign government, so the United States, and also you have the recipient government. So I think it starts with an ideational perspective ideational dimension. Then secondly, if you have this converging interest on, let's say in this case, during the 1990s, um, post-Cold post War, early 1990s, the agenda was about democracy promotion, good governance, um, economic development. These principles were Later on, um, reflected in the way that these domestic governments or recipient governments mobilize not only the foreign aid that they receive, but also their domestic resources. So, this is the process that I call uh, resource mobilization. And if the converging interests plus the resource mobilization mechanisms are really about a comprehensive range of non militaristic, non militaristic, um themes or priorities then you are more likely to see and indeed that's what we saw in the case of 1990s Thailand and the Philippines fewer human rights abuses and if there are these are collateral human rights abuses which I later on discussed but really about fewer human rights abuse state initiated human rights abuses um in, in both countries so i think but you have you still the 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 theory of interest convergence, so just a final note about the theory is that even with all these supposedly good intentions and perhaps desirable way of converging their interests in non militaristic issues, you still have these um residual abuses right so for example, you have an individual police or military off military officer or a soldier um capturing um, suspects or killing a a particular civilian, most likely because of a mistaken identity. This is is a collateral abuse, which is an abuse, but um, collateral to the extent that there was an absence of statewide policy. And I argue that this is um, the outcome of, you know, an enduring condition in most of these countries in which you have um systemic problems, both in the judiciary but also in the coercive agencies of the state, which require long-term development, that not only um, you know, a temporarily, you know, a temporarily guided converging interest could suddenly change.
2: Mm, and it was very interesting how you brought together all of these points that um in the way that, you know, these weak recipient governments typically engage in violent repression of both armed and armed political Opposition, And there was this, uh, it was influenced by sort of his culture of uh, state impunity and then also re- um, how effective a judiciary was. Um, I don't know if you want to comment on these um, now in a bit more detail.
1: Absolutely. So I think the, um, especially for our audience members who, might be from from the field of law um, or those in the in legal scholarship. I think what I also found out in this book was that um, despite all these very strong um, policy agendas from the executive branch of the government to promote human rights, to actually have. Human rights consciousness training programs within the judiciary, within the military, for example, or the police, you still have a lot of these residual abuses. And I do think that in many of, at least in the, in the cases that I explored here, there seems to be a culture of judicial impunity. This is not only a question of a change in the leadership, but it involves, um, you know, it should involve changes as well in the overall institutional culture. Just imagine, for example, if you are a family member of um, someone who was forcibly disappeared, right? Um, you will go in, most, most of these victims, most of these family members come from the lower classes of the socioeconomic hierarchy, at least in those two cases that I explored. And it will take a lot of grit and resources, financial resources, just to file a case, And navigate through this complex bureaucracy of judiciary. And in fact, many of them received death threats eventually when they filed these cases. And when they did, eventually, despite the support of those in the executive branch of the government, right? you still have... um, very, very strong resistance from from the top milit- leadership of the military, and at times you also have problems of judicial um, ineffectiveness. Right, a lot of backlog in the judiciary and so forth. So I think that was that was really um, the complexity behind this story.
0: This episode is brought to you by
1: Shopify.
0: Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory shopify pos has everything you need to sell in person go to shopify.com slash system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com slash system
2: um yeah it sort of really is unimaginable um i you know Someone being a family member being forcibly disappeared and then having to navigate, as you say, these really complex judicial processes, which are, you know, not necessarily not corrupt. And, yeah, it's it sounds complex and very just emotionally traumatic as well. Um, As you mentioned right at the start, this sort of idea of mental harassment, it's it sounds incredibly overwhelming in a very difficult situation.
1: Absolutely. Oh,
2: Sorry, go on.
1: I just wanted to say that in in many cases, many of these uh, surviving family members will just um, coordinate with human rights organizations. And for them, um, at the very least, or for that moment, it's enough to tell their story and document it, but they still go on with with these cases. And these cases sometimes are being um, supported by many of these pro bono lawyers and human rights organizations, but it's difficult. We're, We're talking about the case that happened many years ago, and still a lot of these cases are pending.
2: Yeah, it just must take so much grit and resilience. It's um, unbelievable to imagine. So let's turn to sort of the case studies in the book. Firstly, um, the first one was the Philippines. You write about um, in the 1990s, and you've mentioned just a moment ago, um, the Clinton policy of democracy um, and... Resource mobilization. So, I want to talk about what was the human rights renaissance in the Philippines in the nineteen nineties, and the role of U.S. foreign policy in the increase in human rights protection in this era.
1: Yeah. So, the case of the Philippines. So, there are five cases in the book that involves uh, U.S. and so U.S. foreign aid in the Philippines and Thailand, divided into various temporal. Um, period. So, the 1990s U.S.-Philippines uh, Thailand relationship, uh, U.S.-Philippines relationship, was a case of a dramatic improvement in human rights. As we all, as many of us, um, many of our viewers pos- possibly know, right, uh, the Philippines uh, transformed into a constitutional democracy in 1980. So, we had the 1987 Philippine Constitution, with the first case of the fur of. Possibly one of the widely documented people power revolution in 1986 that toppled the two decade brutal dictatorship of the Marcos regime. So Corazon Aquino, which is widely known as the the father the mother of democracy in the in the Philippines and one of the key hero heroines of, of Philippine democracy, start was the first president. And under the 1987 Philippine Constitution, the 1990s was. I would argue, was a period of trying to consolidate what started in the late 1980s. And this period of consolidation attempts for democracy um, were bolstered by pro-democracy U.S. foreign aid packages, but also diplomatic um, Diplomacy programs, but more so with the Ramos administration. So, the press of Fidel V. Ramos, who succeeded Corazon Aquino as the duly elected president at the time, uh, Fidel Ramos' policy agenda was about consolidating what started in the late 1980s, but also arguing that democracy is the only way to go in order for you to stimulate economic development this was also the time when you have a very vibrant civil society um, movement in the Philippines of so various sorts of civil society movements the Ramos administration was um, So there were several programs that I outlined in the book, but let me just highlight, for example, Philippines 2000, so of the Ramos administration, and he argued, so this is a key paradigm at the time, and the Philippines 2000 resonated very well with the Clinton administration's emphasis on democracy as the key ingredient for stimulating economic development, which was the same argument of of the Ramos administration's uh, Philippines two thousand. And this was how they also tried to understand the 1997 Asian financial crisis. So I think that was um, a renaissance to the extent that it was made possible through these converging interests of not only the Ramos administration, but also the local stakeholders at the time, market actors, civil society actors, plus you have the reinforcement effect of pro-democracy U.S. diplomacy.
2: And yet at the same time, you also write about, um, you know, there was this improvement in human rights protections, but there were still two types of abuses which remain pervasive. Um, can you talk a bit more about this? It sort of, I think, draws out your paradigm really well through the book.
1: Yeah, so in the book, I conceptualized two types of abuses. Um, the first one would be those Abuses that were um, induced or that were basically caused by what I call a selective political repression. So, selective political repression is a mechanism through which the domestic recipient government uses foreign aid resources, but also its own domestic resources, to actually systematically target, identify. Kill and harass um, civilians that were deemed as enemies of the state in one way or another. So this is a blanket term that in cap that captures possibly student activists, you know, critical independent investigative journalists, and so forth. Um, so that is a causal mechanism. That is a mechanism of selective political repression. If you have and this selective political repression, that basically kills and harass um, civilians opposition is civilians this mechanism emerges when you have a recipient government that is deemed with a very low level of domestic legitimacy right and you've seen this in the case of, of the Philippines and also in the case of Thailand after 2001 um, and this process of selective political repression requires the full mobilization of the executive branch, but also the coercive apparatus of the state. And that would lead to a crisis in human rights. And that is what I call as the intended uh, human rights abuses. Now, I also have The second type of abuse would be collateral abuses, which nonetheless are still abuses. And I'm not arguing whether, which I'm not making a normative argument, which one is the lesser evil, because at the end of the day, you harassed and you actually undermined and in many cases killed a civilian, at least in the context of the theory and also the empirical evidence. Collateral abuses emerge regardless of what really happens if you have a strong or a or a weak domestic leader. This happens likely because of the enduring conditions that we have in, in many of these countries. Um, you know, an ineffective judicial apparatus that permits soldiers and police agents or other um, state agents to actually commit abuses without any, syst- without any credible system of accountability that could face them. And uh, these are collateral abuses that, that emerges in the absence of a statewide policy of repression from the executive branch of the government.
2: And so then what we've got sort of in this period is um, on the one hand a sort of renaissance in human rights, but then at the same time, there's this persuasive ongoing selective political repression and collateral abuses. But then in the post-September 11 period, the sort of pendulum swings back again the other way. Um, can you tell me what happened um, post-September 11 in the Philippines, in, especially in terms of the shift in U.S. foreign policy, um, in terms of strategic aid and how these played out on the ground?
1: Yeah, so in the case of the Philippines and Thailand, after post, after the after the terror attacks in the United States in, in September 11, 2001, well, first we understand what happened. We can understand the human rights crisis in Philippines and Thailand by understanding what happened transnationally at the transnational level. So, the transnational level, you have the United States that actually shifted its policy agenda from, you know, um, reducing its military fo- footprint worldwide to basically expanding the bureaucratic apparatus for violence in the case of the. US you have we have to remember also that the so George W. Bush a few months before 9/11 happened, this was we're talking about the first few months of the Bush presidency he pledged that um, his administration was about reducing militarism. Strangely enough, but we don't remember Bush for that. We remember Bush for the war on terror. And eventually, the war on terror happened. So you had this dramatic shift in the strategic priorities of the United States. And the Philippines and Thailand um, were the traditional allies of the United States in the region. And they casted um, I provided empirical evidence in the book that they casted, so these government, so the Philippine and the Thai governments actually casted their own countries as critical partners or they're necessary in order for this global war on terror to be um, effective. It has, so it, the U.S. The US um, strategy has to take into account the role of Southeast Asia. And they casted Southeast Asia as the second front in the war on terror next to the Middle East as the first front. This was a very, um, I would say, highly questionable in terms of the available intelligence, right? Um, But also yet very powerful narrative, lobbying narrative that made the Bush administration, that actually convinced the Bush administration that, okay, we will provide Foreign aid and increased, dramatically increased foreign aid to the Philippines and Thailand. Um, in the case of the Arroyo regime and also the Thaksin regime, they faced their own. Um, while they might have been elected into power. In the case of the Arroyo regime, she succeeded through the second people power revolution, but was eventually re-elected in 2004, but through a rigged electoral scandal. In the case of Thaksin, he faced a lot of, there are certain sectors of the Thai society that faced, um, that actually resisted his regime or were not in favor of him, particularly those in the The elites and other stakeholders in Bangkok. This sort of insecurity pushed these regimes to use this counter terror agenda. So that's the discursive aspect, but also the counter terror support, the material support, so the foreign aid, which would be the material aspect, plus their own domestic resources and reorient all of these to um, state repression. And when we say state repression here, that involves two um, types of of abuses, So you have selective political repression that looks in, well, first we look into the increased counter terror operations. So if you have a dramatically increased counter terror operations, then you are most likely to actually um, basically have a lot more collateral abuses. But in the case of selective political repression, we have this highly insecure governments of the Arroyo regime, but also the Taksina administration, and they eventually use these sudden surge of, of foreign resources to um, n- national security imperatives but eventually repressing um, civilians that were deemed to be um, you know oppositionists or resistant to their regime.
2: And one really other interesting point I think that sort of builds on this he wrote about um, both in the Philippine context and also in the Thai context, um, about the domestic public anxiety over the perceived terror threat. And in a sense, this almost played into this like increased political um, repression and human rights repressions in both these um, countries. Can you talk more about this?
1: Yeah, so the question there is, if the Arroyo and the Taksin regime were, were instrumentalizing this counterterror agenda that emerged after the US-led global war on terror, why, is it the case, why was it the case that the domestic public suddenly accept them, right? It, sound, it sounds for us now, like 20 years from, from that time, so now it's 20 years after 2001. It seems counterintuitive. Why would I support uh, state repression? And in fact, a lot of these surveys um, at the time, there, it showed that basically demonstrated that there is very strong domestic public support for increased counterterrorism. And that was fueled by um, this anxiety of the domestic public, large chunks of the population that because of what happened in the terror attacks in the United States, we should also reinforce and bolster our our state coercion. And um, these leaders in the Philippines and Thailand, and this is what is being captured by my theory as well, the interest convergence theory through through the process of strategic localization, they did not um, import this counter-terror agenda without customizing it in their own context. They argued that, well, we have this ongoing conflict in Southern Thailand um, that was... um, Allegedly, well, fueled through this, um, uh, through Muslim armed insurgency, but also in the case of Southern Philippines, fueled by long-standing armed Islamic insurgency, they these governments reframed and linked discursively linked these ongoing conflicts with the U.S.-led global war on terror. That made the narrative of the domestic war on terror very, very appealing. This is what happened with this is. What is presented to us by the empirical evidence, and true enough, I mean, the theory in political psychology confirms this. You have the rally round the flag effect of the Bush administration, and I would argue that this is also the the phenomenon that we observe in in post nine eleven Philippines and Thailand.
2: And that was like super interesting point that came through. Um, I want to talk also now. Was there any sort of shift once Obama became president?
1: Yeah, there there was a, a dramatic shift in the case of the Obama administration, particularly with its uh, foreign relations with the Philippines and Thailand. Um, the Obama administration, of course, I mean, in other parts of the world, and if you look into the global strategy of the Obama administration, the war on terror was still continuing, right? Um, in fact, I wrote an article a co-authored article with Tom De Groot about the drone warfare of the Obama administration. The Obama administration, in fact, killed a lot more civilians through the drone warfare in ways that were quite unprecedented during the Bush administration. So, I mean, in the in the grand scheme of things, the Obama administration was really um, found was. What really relied on a militaristic strategy, but in the case of its foreign relations with um its key partners in southeast asia so Thailand and the Philippines, there was militarism, but the militarism was just one amongst the many non militaristic interests of the united states government obama um, invest the obama administration so the u s a strategy invested a lot on Democracy promotion with the Aquino administration, for example, um, democracy promotion, civil society, um, activism, also economic development. And there was, in fact, an agenda for militarism, but the militaristic agenda of the Obama administration, the Aquino administration, was not really geared towards domestic insurgency, but to a large extent, this was about um, the rise of China. So... I think I'll I'll stop at that. So but but the idea there was that it actually diluted the 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 very strong emphasis on militarism by the previous administration with the Royal administration, and that this emphasis on a wide range of non-militaristic interests between the Obama administration, the Aquino administration made it more possible for um well basically facilitated fewer human rights abuses therein.
2: And I think This sort of, my next question sort of draws this all together. You look at, um, you just talked about the Clinton administration and then Bush and Obama, and there was this sort of theme that comes through in terms of whether governments have shared expectations for stronger human rights protections. Um, And what I'm talking about in terms of government shared expectations, so, for example, um, the domestic government, the aid recipient, and the donor government. So this actually translates to, it has practical implications on the ground can you talk a bit more about these government-shared expectations and the human rights implications?
1: Yeah, so uh, the shared expectations are extremely important for any type of interstate cooperation, right? Or at least, I mean, in, in individual psychology, we wouldn't cooperate with other individuals if we don't have a, a very dominant overarching common interest with each other, and that is the... That fuels any type of collaboration, especially at the, in international relations. Um, in the case of in the case of of U.S. foreign aid, it was always imbricated based on not only on the not only on the overarching interests of the presidential administration at that time in the United States, but that interests of the U.S. government always have to be in consonance at least partially, with the interest of the potential recipient government. And it has a lot of implications in on the politics on the ground because these overarching interests of the executive branch of the government in the recipient state will basically, I wouldn't say dictate, but basically shape how the entire state machinery will actually work, right? Um, if you have a sitting head of the government who talks about Co- counterterrorism almost every week plus you have a very uh, i mean um a receipt i mean um uh, p- patron country in the case of the united states that also talks about militarism and counterterrorism every day then the entire state machinery will be reoriented towards that and you can see that's exactly what happened in the case of of the Philippines and Thailand on the ground. And even in the case of Thailand, for example, if you look into the 2003 war on drugs, the 2003 war on drugs was really about repression of anyone who subjected to, who was deemed to be a drug addict or anyone who suspected to be trafficking drugs beyond the realm of law. So these were were cases of extrajudicial killings. And then the question is, what does it have to do with the war on terror? Well, it was, in fact, rebranded in the case of the war on terror, right? Right. And this was also the time wherein you have a lot of military footprint in U.S. military footprint in Thailand. The agenda of the Bush administration and the Taksin administration was casted in the war on terror. And therefore, these state agents were much more um, reinvigorated in making sure that their actions in the context of the war on drugs was really about national security. So these kinds of discourses are not floating in the clouds as if they have nothing to do in the ground. They were, in fact, the 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 fuel in terms of the entire state machinery.
2: And, I mean, I found this so interesting in the book because... Um, some of these sort of ideas were almost counterintuitive. You know, like how does the government in Thailand sort of link this sort of increase of state repression by a, a war on drugs to a war on terror? Um, and it was really sort of surprising findings um, that came through in the book. And I think it was really, really um, valuable as well. So then I guess just to sum it all up, do you have any um, sort of last words, I guess, in terms of the patterns or any ideas that you can identify in terms of the impact of strategic assistance on the protection of human rights in Southeast Asia?
1: Yeah, so I think um, just perhaps two points. and. Um, I hope that this uh, our conversation will fuel more um, questions and and debates from, from our audience members about the role of foreign aid. And that's exactly what I wanted to accomplish. And one of the things that I wanted to accomplish here by publishing this book. First is the idea that um, foreign aid has always been an instrument of political elites, both in recipient and in donor governments. Um, There are blatant political interests, and some of these political interests might be good for democracy and human rights, at least in the short term. And some of them are not, depending on the domestic conditions. So the point being is that we have to always look into these converging interests. But secondly, at least in the medium, short to medium term, if we are to give foreign aid or foreign assistance to other countries, the goal should not only be on these short-term interests. The goal should also be in the long-term institutionalization, long-term institutional improvement, rather, of of the military and the police agencies, but also the judicial apparatus. What do I mean by that exactly? In terms of the military and police agencies, you have to make sure that the agents of state violence know what the law allows them to do, constitutionally speaking, what are their obligations, what are their human rights obligations as they conduct statecraft? Right, not only in terms of the domestic human rights law that's applicable in their own respective countries, but also their, the international human rights law that actually covers them. That is very important, and we've seen that um, in the Aquino administration. That was, although in the short in that short period of six years, the Aquino administration accomplished a lot, but they also targeted uh, strengthen, strengthening um, human rights awareness. Um, within the coercive apparatus. And I think those kinds of reforms are very important. In terms of judicial effectiveness, I think it's also important that we should also improve, so not only through domestic resources but also foreign aid, improving not um, not only in making sure that our judges are capable, right?, um, at various levels, but also making sure that they there is an institutional improvement on how cases are being handled. It's a question, I think, of institutional management or management practices. Probably less so of judicial capacity, judicial competence in terms of of judging cases. But it's really a question. Also, it's a question of management, right? I mean, institutional um, development. Secondly, so that's the first, I mean, I think the second order set of concerns. The first order set of concerns is that I hope that we live in a world order. And I think this is where the conclusion um, tries to tease out. And I hope that the readers will find the conclusion a bit more provocative. The idea that I hope that we really live in a world order in which there's no need to have an institutionalized foreign aid. And that can only happen if we live in a world order in which there's not so much material disparity between and within nation states, and possibly that, and that would be a dramatic restructuring and transformation of the world order we live in—a a world order that I hope will be based on a care-based economy, a world order that is based on political equality, and a world order in which our life chances are. Are you know much better than than those in the global south? But there's no need for you to. If you were born in in a specific place, your life chances are nominally the same as those in other places, and that's what I'm hoping for.
2: I certainly hope that your research stimulates um, that sort of um, debate and more research and discussion um, and resources into this sort of work. It's so important, and I think you've really. Um, You've, you've captured it but you've as I said before you've really opened the gate for hopefully um, this sort of idea of this first order of this world order um, where you know conditions are improved regardless of where you're born so that's sort of um, yeah a really a g- great way to end the book did you want to add anything further
1: uh, I think that's 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 it for now with regard to aid Imperium and um Yeah, so I think, I hope that it does, future researchers will be able to see if the interest convergence theory would hold water in other cases as well. And I think I would be happy to read those future research projects.
2: Well, it's very, um, very interesting uh, area for more research. Now, Santino, I've taken up a lot of your time. So just before you go, can you just fill me in? What are you working on now?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, I'm the type of scholar who would like to work in different projects although with different time trajectories. But I'm currently working on a project that looks into the role of super rich individuals and billionaires um, and and the role in global governance and in domestic politics. So I, I will be starting on a fellowship in at the Max Planck Institute in Heidelberg for Public and International Law. But this was some th- This was a research project that I earlier started uh, during the pandemic. Uh, no, be- right before the pandemic with um, a constitutional scholar, Ron Herschel. So I'm trying to develop this idea of global oligarchic constitutionalism, uh, which I think is one way of capturing how um, billionaires actually fuel so much of world politics in ways that we haven't really grappled with. And I think that's what I wanted to to look into. And secondly, I'm looking into a co-authored project about the role of United States foreign aid and Chinese foreign aid in the era of rising powers. So I think this could be a very good uh, way of a sequel to Aid Imperium. So I'm working with uh, Albert Hodsey from the University of Liverpool, who's an expert on Chinese uh, foreign relations in Africa in the African continent.
2: Those both sound like very interesting and very, very topical, um, perhaps somewhat controversial things to be working on right now, but, um, yeah, very timely. So I'll look forward to seeing what comes out of that. Um, so just to sort of bring it all together, I'm Jane Richards. I've been speaking with Salvador Santino F. Rahilme Jr., Um, about his latest book, Aid Imperium, United States Foreign Policy and Human Rights in Post-Cold War Southeast Asia. Santino, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you so much, Jane. I appreciate your time and interest in reading the book.